Well, good morning, Harmony. To the few and to the proud who journeyed here today, it's great to have you. Those of you that are online, welcome. Um, I hope you're cozy and warm and safe in your home. So the, uh, for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Matt Mitchell, and I have the privilege of being the Danville campus pastor. And so what Clay Baker does here at the Burlington campus and what Andrew Weiss does at the Fort Madison campus, that's what I have the privilege of doing at the Danville campus. Now, I also want to say Happy New Year to everyone listening. Happy New Year. And uh, I hope you've been safe navigating this winter storm. Um, Isn't it crazy that it took until January until we got some serious snow? Isn't that wild for Iowa? It's like, okay, like it's not snowing, it's not snowing, it's not snowing. Here comes January and we get snow. So, um, but you know what they say, right? In like a lamb, out like a lion. So we're probably going to get some more surprises, I think, if that's true. So, but that's actually neat because today our text the sermon I've prepared, it's all about surprises. And so today is a great day for me to be preaching on this text, all about surprises. Um, Surprises, we're going to find out in our text today, there's surprises about um, certain people, how they respond to God, and also surprises regarding how God graciously responds to certain people. Now, with that said, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And in the auditorium Bible, it's on page 685. Gospel of Luke chapter 15. And there's something I can probably guarantee today. This is going to be the best sermon you have heard yet this year. Okay? I don't know if I could say that next week, but as of this point, this is really the best sermon you've heard up to this point. Okay? So try not to get your hopes up too much. Um, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this. This is Jesus um, in context here, and it's going to give us some background in verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, these first two verses give some really valuable information in understanding our passage today. And here's why. We need to know who Jesus is speaking to, who his audience is, and more importantly, why he's choosing to speak to them, what he's going to speak to them. So he has two different groups here. He has tax collectors and sinners. These are the irreligious, the those in society that would have been considered far from God, unrighteous, And then you have the hyper-religious, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they would have been seen as these esteemed esteemed example of what it meant to please God and to be close with God. That's what people thought in that day. And what are the scribes and the Pharisees doing? They're grumbling because Jesus is choosing to spend his time with notorious sinners, with the irreligious. And when it says eat with them, welcome them, what that means is if you ate with somebody, you accepted them. You're like, you're with me, I approve of you, you're my friend. And so the Pharisees, they're grumbling about this because they're like, how could Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, be spending time with these sinners? Doesn't he know that they're unrighteous? And if he spends time with them, they're gonna rub off on him? But what Jesus knows is that he has come for the greatest of sinners and the way he's going to rub off on them is getting as close to them as he possibly can. And that's what the Pharisees don't understand. So 
Now, with this attitude in mind, keep this attitude in mind, they're grumbling, they're, they're complaining in their hearts, they're upset over who Jesus chose to spend his time with. And so what does Jesus choose to do in response to this? Here's what Jesus chooses to do. Verse three, so he told them this parable. Jesus chooses to tell a story in response to what's going on here. And I love this. Jesus, he is the best teacher of all time. And part of the reason he's the best teacher of all time is because he loved to use story. And a lot of times he would speak a story or a parable into a complex situation. Rather than giving a pat answer, he would speak a story and he would let people see it from a different angle. And he loved to connect with people using narrative. So here's what he says in verse four. He starts off this parable or story. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, Jesus is connecting with his audience. His audience in this time in the first century, they would have known about sheep. They would have known about shepherds. They would have been around livestock or helped take care of livestock themselves. And so he's relating with them and he's saying, okay, which one of you, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them strays off, are you not gonna leave the 99 ones that are good, that they're safe to go search after the one that's lost? Who wouldn't do that? That's what he's saying. Now in verse five, we find out what happens during the search. Look with me at verse five. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. The shepherd searches, the shepherd finds his sheep, throws it on his shoulders, and he begins to rejoice, but he doesn't only rejoice by himself in isolation. He gathers his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me because I had a sheep that was lost. I went out and looked for it. I found it and the sheep is back safe and sound. So why does Jesus tell this first parable? Well, verse verse seven tells us, verse seven, just so I tell you, meaning just like the story I just told you about the sheep, just like that, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Heaven gets excited when things that are not supposed to be lost are found. That's what Jesus is saying. Heaven gets excited when things that are not supposed to be lost are found again. If you played the game, would you rather with Jesus? You know that game? Like, would you rather eat an apple or an orange? That'd be like the worst question in that game. Super boring. But would you rather, right? Would you rather this or would you rather that? Um, If you played that with Jesus and you said, Jesus, you know, would you rather have someone who was living in sin and was really lost repent and then return to the Father? Or would you rather have a church full of people who didn't really see they had any need for repentance? Jesus, would you rather? He would choose what? The lost sinner every time that returns to him. Every time, that's who he would choose. And that's what Jesus is getting at. However, Jesus wants to take this even deeper. And so he doesn't just tell one parable. He also tells a second parable. Look down with me at verse eight. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Now, this parable um, is it's, it's familiar, it's similar, excuse me, to the first one, like the sheep, but instead of outdoors, this takes place indoors. And maybe the first one would have connected more with men. The second one probably connects more with women. And Jesus even addresses this to women and uses a woman as the character in this particular parable. And this is actually really neat because Luke in his gospel, he continually highlights Jesus's affection and inclusion of women. And uh, this is unique to the gospel of Luke. And that's just a side note, but it's really neat to keep in mind that Jesus um, had this um, awesome appreciation, affection and inclusion of women. And he does that here by changing his story and says, or what woman among you? And when he's addressing the crowd with women in the crowd. So at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, all right, I'm not really sure I'm really connecting all that much with Jesus's, you know, metaphors here as parables, like sheep, shepherds. I've never cared for livestock. I've never been a shepherd. Maybe some of you are in Iowa are like, that's my job. I do that every day. Um, but, uh, and then it's like, it's, you know, the house with the lost silver coin. I don't typically keep my income in silver coin form. That's not typically something I do. Um, so I'm having a hard time connecting with Jesus here with his, with his parables and his stories. And I kind of thought that as I was preparing for this, I was like, yeah, these, these are definitely stories that would have connected straight with his audience at the time in the first century. But for us, we have to work a little bit harder to really get this in the picture Jesus is painting, but not too much. It doesn't take that, that much effort. So when you think about that moment, you're getting ready to leave the house, you've got to go somewhere and you forget your car keys or your wallet, right? Everything stops and you search everywhere until you find the car keys or you find their wallet, right? Or maybe something more important than that. Um, I know every 4th of July, somebody's dog runs off because it's alarmed by the fireworks and stuff, right? And if you want to search for their dog um, or maybe a wedding band is lost. What if an important document is lost that you have to have? or a passport. You know, how many people like three days before they're supposed to fly out of the country can't find their passport, right? And if you can't find your passport and you're supposed to leave the country in three days, you tear apart the entire house and, and you bring other people with you to help you with that search, like friends and family. And then when you find it, you're not just like, oh wait, there it is right where I left it. No, you're like, I've got it. I've got the passport. I found it. We're gonna go. And everybody stops looking and there's this relief and there's this joy that comes over everybody. That's the picture that Jesus is painting here. That's the picture that Jesus is painting here. And we can see why he says this in verse 10. It's the same thing he kind of says in verse seven, just so in verse 10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this is really neat. Verse seven says there's more joy in heaven. And now here in verse 10, it says there's joy before the angels. But so often the Bible, when it says heaven, it's just another way of saying God himself. And there's joy before the angels because who are the angels observing in heaven? They're observing the master of heaven. They're observing God himself. So this isn't just there's joy in heaven and there's joy among the angels, but there's joy in heaven, there's joy among the angels because they're watching God and he's the one getting lit up about sinners returning to him, amen? That's what's going on in this passage. Now, this would have been super surprising to the people listening of the day. And it would have been really, really offensive 
to the religious leaders because remember, they're seen as like the, the esteemed example of what it meant to be close to God and to please God. And it's like, if you were gonna be pleasing in God's eyes, you needed to be like one of them. But here, Jesus is flipping that assumption on its head. And he's saying to the grumbling Pharisees and the scribes, he's saying, what brings God joy is not self-righteousness, but it's self-surrender. God's not pleased with your grumbling about the lost. He's overjoyed and he's celebrating about the lost returning to him. That's what God is thinking and that's what God is feeling when lost people return to him. So what is Jesus' point? What's he pointing out to us? It might surprise you. It might surprise you. God's joy is tied to repentance, not to our uprightness. Or to say it another way, God's joy is tied to our repentance, not our self-righteousness. God in heaven rejoices and delights when people return to him, not when people have this, I've got this on my own attitude. That's what Jesus is saying here. What God rejoices over is not 99 self-righteous, but just one surrendered sinner who returns to him. And this isn't just sinners generally. This is people with individual names in real time and space who return to their father in heaven. There's more joy over one sinner who repents and returns to him. And I love that. Now, if this wasn't enough to get Jesus' point across, Jesus tells a third and a final parable. This is the last parable. This is the longest parable. This is the capstone parable. This is what Jesus has been building to this entire time is to this third parable. So we have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and this last parable isn't about lost possessions, but it's about a lost family. It's about a lost family. Follow along with me, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now in Jesus' day, when a father would pass away, two thirds of the inheritance would go to the eldest brother and the other third would go to the youngest brother. That's just the way it worked back then. Okay, I'm glad it doesn't work that way today because I'm a second born, right? Glad that's changed. Um, and Jesus, in this story, he shows us that this younger brother, he comes to his father while his father is still living and he asks for his inheritance now. And this would have been incredibly offensive back then, let alone today, but for sure in Jesus' time, if somebody would have came and asked for their inheritance early, because essentially what he was saying when he did that was, I wish you were dead, I want what you have, and I'm out of here. That's basically what the son was saying to his father. And the audience would have recognized that and known that. So the younger son, he does not care about his father. He just wants what his father can give him. That's what's going on here. He doesn't want a relationship with his father. He just wants his father's stuff. That's what's going on. But amazingly, the father gives it to him and he lets him go. So what he probably does is he probably liquidates his property, 
because he had property, possessions. If he's gonna go in a far off country, you can't take all that with you. So he probably sells it. He gets cash and he goes into this far off country. And what's he do? He doesn't withhold himself from anything. He just spends it on reckless living. And you could use your imagination for what that looked like. Spend it all on reckless living. But the story goes on. Look with me in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Okay, things take a turn here, don't they? Things take a turn here. At the same time that he runs out of money, a famine comes and it changes everything. So he runs out of money, a famine comes around the same time. And so there have been shortages on jobs, shortages on food. There have been social unrest during a time like this. And so what's he do? At least he's a little bit prudent and he he goes to get a job. He goes to get a job, but not just any job. He gets a job looking after pigs. All right, so this isn't a great job. All right, he's out in this pig field. He's tending these pigs. He's feeding these pigs. And even though this seems like it's a really low job, and it is, even for this uh, place, this region, for a Jewish son, this would have been the lowest job you could possibly have in a huge taboo because Jews didn't associate with pigs. They were unclean animals, swine were. You weren't supposed to eat them. You weren't supposed to associate with them. You weren't supposed to raise them. But the only job he can find is a job out in a pig field. And he's so hungry that he's longing to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. But the text says that no one would even give him any. No one would even give him any of the pig food. So he goes from top of the world to the storm drain overnight, right? He was from top of the world to the gutter overnight, basically. But it's at this low place that something begins to happen for the younger son. It's at this low place that something begins to change for him. And what happens? He remembers his father. He remembers his father. Look at verse 17 with me. But when he came to himself, the NIV says, he, when he came to his senses, He said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Here, the younger son has a change of heart and a change of mind. And what brings that about? He remembers his father. He remembers that his father is good, that his father is benevolent, that his father is gracious. And he remembers that his father's leadership is so good that even the hired workers that come on and work for his dad part-time, they're not lacking of anything. They have bread to eat and they have nothing that they're lacking. Even the hired workers under his father's leadership. So what does he do? What's the younger son do? He devises a plan. He's going to go back to his father. He's going to confess. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm, not, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I know that he knows that. And he's hoping maybe just maybe the father will take him back as a hired worker so that he can at least have his daily needs met 
and maybe he can pay back the inheritance that he squandered in the far off country. That's what he's thinking here. I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna confess to my father that I've sinned against him and I've sinned against heaven. I'm gonna ask for his forgiveness. I'm gonna tell him I'm not worthy to be a son, but if you would just maybe possibly make me a hired worker, I'm gonna start to pay back what I've taken from you. And at this point, it should be noted, when any of us decide to go our own way, God will not force you to stay. God, he will graciously allow you to go your own way, like the father in this story, and he'll allow you to wander, and he will allow you to experience the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he'll allow you to experience the suffering of that sin, because he knows that there's going to come a day that by his grace, by his grace, you are going to come to your senses. You're going to come to yourself and you're gonna remember him. And you're gonna remember that he's gracious and that he's benevolent and that he's good and that you've never lacked anything in his presence. But God doesn't force people to stay. He will graciously allow you to go. He will graciously allow you to go get knocked around because he knows that by his grace, you're gonna come to your senses when he calls your name and you will come back to him. And you will realize another surprising truth about life and about God, and that's this, it might surprise you. God himself is better than the gifts he can give us. God himself is better than the gifts that he can give us, right? Do you believe that today? God himself in his person is better than what he can give us. And what the son realizes in the pig field is that everything he ever needed or wanted was really with his father the whole time. It was with his father the whole time, everything he needed. Everything he wanted was with his father in his presence. What the father can give us is not better than the father himself. That's what this picture is showing us. Now here's where it gets really good. Here's where it gets really good. The boy's father responds in a surprising way, very unexpectedly. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. All right, those aren't my words. This is the Bible. This is Jesus talking here. Now, if you haven't picked up on it by now, Jesus is showing us through this father in the story how the heavenly father is towards us. Okay, if you haven't picked up on that by now, that's what's going on here. And so often we think to ourselves, man, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was in the flesh with us and like his disciples and he could tell us about the father and what the father's like. And that would be awesome if we would have been like the disciples. But here's the thing is, we don't need that because Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his holy word and we can understand his word by his spirit. And here in the gospel of Luke, we have Jesus telling a story, connecting with his audience. And he wants them to know what the heavenly father thinks and feels when sinners return home. That's what Jesus is showing here. So we have this awesome picture into the life of Jesus, into his heart. And he's telling this story and he's showing us 
what the father's like and how he responds to us. And so we need to lean into this and we need to have ears wide open about how the father responds. And how does the father respond? While he was still a long way off, he sees him, he's filled with compassion and he doesn't wait until his son returns to him. He goes out to meet his son. He runs out to him and he embraces him and he kisses him, okay? And I know some of you are probably thinking, man, he's just embracing him like that, physical affection, because it's the second born and the physical, in the second born, they, they're more about the physical touch, you know? Um, <laughs> no, this is for everybody. He loves his sons. And this son that is returned, he runs out and he embraces him and he's overjoyed. And now we see what else happens. Verse 21, and the son said to him, now the son's getting a chance to respond. And remember, he rehearsed this thing. He says, father, I sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even finish, his father cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish that last piece about, Mick, I'm gonna come back as a hired worker. Make me like one of your hired workers. The father doesn't even let him finish that part. He just says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. This is likely the family signet ring, which shows he's back in the family. Put shoes on his feet. He probably returned home with no shoes and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now the fattened calf was a special animal, a calf that was reserved probably to be killed once a year for a special feast or party. It was reserved for that purpose alone. And if a fattened calf was killed, then the whole town or village would probably be invited to a celebration like this. And so that's probably what took place. The fattened calf's killed, everybody's gonna show up. And why does the father pull out all the stops here? Why does he do all this? Verse 24, he says, why? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, there's something else that Jesus is trying to show us and it may surprise you. It might surprise you that God doesn't respond to us like we think he will. God does not respond to us like we think he will. The younger son obviously didn't deserve the reaction he got from his father. He obviously didn't deserve any of this, right? He squandered everything he had on reckless living in a far off country. And then he comes back with nothing. He doesn't have shoes on his feet. Even though he doesn't deserve this reaction from his father, he gets it anyways. And this is exactly how it is with us. This is exactly how it is with us. God doesn't respond to us according to our sin and according to our past. He responds to us with grace. Amen. Amen. He responds to us with grace. We think that we can out God. We can out his grace. I've done, I've done it again. I've sinned too much. He'll never take me back. I've out his grace. You cannot out God's grace. You cannot do it. And this story is showing us that. Jesus is showing us that. It might surprise you that God does not respond to us like we think he will. And I praise God for that. Now, it's at this point we come to the concluding episode of the parable. Remember, the father not only has a younger son who wandered, but he also has an older son who stayed back. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. It means pleaded with him. He was petitioning him, come back in. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, this is the father, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, the ending of the story provides an unusual twist that you wouldn't necessarily expect here. When everyone's celebrating the return of the younger son, the older son finds out about it and he's outraged. He's outraged. And why does he respond like this? Why does the older son respond like this? In his eyes, it's not fair. This is unjust. This is unfair. That's what he thinks. And if you look at verse 29 again, he says, look, these many years I've served you. Some translations say I've slaved for you all these years. I've never disobeyed your commands and you've never done anything for me is basically what he says. You've never done anything like this for me. His real motives are finally exposed. His real motives for doing everything that he does are finally exposed when the younger son returns and the celebration's going on and he sees how his father's responding to his younger brother. See, at the end of the day, the older son just wanted what his father could give him to. The older son just wanted what his father could give him to. That's what he wanted. See, there's two lost sons in this story. The older and the younger. They were both lost because they both didn't understand the worth of knowing their father. They both didn't understand the worth of knowing their father. For the older son, see, it didn't matter how hard he worked or that he had not left or that he had stewarded his share of the property better. None of that mattered because his heart wasn't changed. His heart was exposed that he was just doing it all because of what he could get. And he was frustrated and he was irritated because he thought he deserved a lot better than what the younger son was getting. And he was banking on that. He was doing it all for the wrong reasons. Which leads us to one of the biggest lessons for us today, church family. This is one of the biggest lessons for us today. Are we doing things for God for the right reasons? Are we doing the things that we do for God in our Christian life as Christ followers, are we doing it for the right reasons? Here's what I mean by that. Are we doing it for God out of a love for him because we wanna please him? Or are we doing it because we think if we do that, he's gonna end up owing me something or he's gonna end up blessing me or I'm just doing this stuff because it makes me feel better about myself or I'm just doing this stuff because I think that's gonna get me a ticket to ride and it's gonna get me eternal life. Why do we really do the things that we do for God? We have to ask that question today. 
Because so often we think God wants something different than what he actually wants from us. So often we think that God wants something different than what he actually wants from us. And it might surprise you. It might surprise you that God's not after what we think he's after. God's not actually after what we think he's after. Here's what I mean by that. The younger son thought, I must pay my father back. I must come on as a hired worker because I've squandered what he gave me. And now I've got to earn it back. If I'm going to please him, if I'm going to get back in his good graces, if he's going to accept me, I've got to earn it back. And he can't earn it back. And that's not even what the father wants. Even if he could earn it back, that's not what the father wants. He just wants him back. And he shows that when he returns and he embraces him and he celebrates over him and he rejoices over him. God doesn't want us to pay him back. If we've sinned, God doesn't want us to pay him back. He just wants us back with him. And for the older son, the older son thought, I must do the right stuff. If I just keep doing the right stuff, if I just stay in my lane, if I just stay faithful, eventually I'm gonna get what I want and that's the full share of the property, that's the full share of the inheritance. Something is gonna be coming my way that's gonna be good. If I'm just faithful, I just gotta keep doing the right stuff. But that's not what the father wanted for the older son, was it? All the, all the father wanted for the older son was to have his older son come into the party and to share his heart for the younger brother and to rejoice with him. That's what the father wanted for the older son. He didn't want his older son grumbling outside saying, this isn't fair, why are you doing this? I don't understand what you're doing. This isn't right. He wanted his older son to come in and to share in his own heart that he had for his son. He wanted him to have that for his brother and to rejoice that he had returned and that he was safe and sound and that he was back. That's what he wanted. And this is so sad because the older brother, he's with his father, but he's with his father the whole time, but he never got his father's heart. Do you see that? He's with, his bro- he's with his father the whole time, but he never develops his father's heart. For the older brother, everything was self-focused. Everything that he did was ultimately because he wanted what he wanted and he thought something was gonna come back to him. It was all about himself. And see, I know in my life, the times in my life that I get really, really stuck on me I get really, really stuck on Matt and my prayers all, they stop being about anybody else and they're all about me and what God is, is or is not doing in my life and why hasn't this happened yet? And I get frustrated and I stop thinking about others. And I'm just only thinking about myself. Those are the times in my life where I'm robbed of joy. I have the most anxiety and the most unrest are those moments where I just get just so focused only on me in my relationship with God. There's no adoration. There's no appreciation. There's no love. It's just, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? And there's a place for lament and prayer, but when you get so focused on everything's about you and God's like, why aren't you doing this yet? What's going on here? You're gonna rob yourself of all joy. And there's gonna be so much unrest in that place. And there's gonna be so much grumbling in that place. And that's what Jesus is showing here because this is what was true of the religious leaders. The same thing that was true of the older brother. But the most joy comes in our life and the most joy comes into my life when I remember the gospel of grace and what God has done for me in Jesus 
and I remember the joy of my salvation and I'm renewed in the joy of my own salvation. Anybody with me? We're just, just renewed, just like, God, I can't believe what you've done for me. I, I just, your heart for me, that you've done this. You haven't just forgiven me and said, okay, now be a hired worker, pay it back, serve me. No, embracing me and celebrating over me. God, I can't believe you've done that for me. And he just, just shows me again the joy of my salvation. And then secondly, what brings even more joy is that when we participate in the joy of others' salvation and when they return to the Father and we can celebrate with heaven over them. And we can celebrate just like heaven and just like God over them. That's what this is all about. Now, as we close... Just something to point out here. Although the older brother, he, does, he never gets his father's heart for himself. He doesn't understand the father's heart for, for himself or for his younger brother, for others. There is a true and perfect older brother who does do that. The older brother in the story doesn't do it. But the one telling this parable, the one speaking this, is Jesus, the true elder brother, the true son. And he has done this perfectly well. It might surprise you. It might surprise you that God has sent a better older son and his name is Jesus, amen? God has sent a better older son and his name is Jesus. And see, all of us were lost. All of us were going astray, but our gracious and loving heavenly father sent his only begotten son to a faraway country to find us and to bring us back to him. Jesus came to this earth. He lived among us. He showed us the way. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the atoning sacrifice, the death that we deserve. And then he was resurrected and went back to the father, leaving the way for us by the spirit that we have a way back to the father. Amen. That's the awesome piece of this story. When you think about who's telling this story and the full plan of redemption, it's amazing. This is amazing. Now, as I close today, I just wanna share a brief story um, that I hope will be encouraging to you because it was to me. Um, recently, um, me and Pastor John DeLuca, we got to go visit a dear sister in Christ in the Fort Madison area who is a member at Harmony. And we got to go visit her and her husband and this particular sister, she is dying of terminal cancer. And really she just has a matter of months is basically what the doctors are saying. And so we went to go visit her and just visit with her and encourage her and to pray with her. But really we walked away encouraged because as we were there visiting with her, it was just so apparent to us that she has a great perspective, this great spirit. She's not grumbling. She's not complaining. She's not thinking about herself. And as we were talking to her, we were talking about her story and her, her salvation and her testimony. And she was just overjoyed remembering the joy of her salvation and how the Lord has saved her and how the Lord has brought her through so much. And then her prayers, we were like, how can we be praying for you? And it was nothing about herself, like for her own healing or her own circumstance. Her prayers in these last few moments of life that the Lord has given her are about her lost son who's not walking with Jesus. 
that we would pray that he would come back, he would come to his senses and he would return to the Father. That's what she's praying for in her last days of life. And I love that because this sister is just embodying this passage and what Jesus is trying to get across here. And that's that heaven rejoices over the one who returns. And she's rejoicing in her own salvation and then her prayers are directed outward And her attitude is an attitude of gratefulness and an attitude of, God, I want to share in the joy of my son returning to you. I want to rejoice just like heaven rejoices when he returns. And so church family, let's be a church family that rejoices in our salvation, in the joy of our salvation, and rejoices in the salvation of others when they return to the Father as well. Would you pray with me?